the picnic today. Um, and raise your hand if you need a lesson, and they'll hand out lessons while I'm doing this stuff. We do have a need for some lessons down here, please, Stacy. Thank you. Um, family picnic. So bring your family, bring your kids, bring your aunts and uncles, bring your. Uh, we have what's a picnic without ants? We we need. Um, <laughs> we bring. <laughs> sorry, uh, loose association in my brain. It happens after a big arm injury, and. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, we're not, we're not uh, going to be at, like have the swimming pool open and stuff, but there are ponds. Actually, though, we don't really push swimming in the ponds either because a lot of people will be fishing. But do bring your fishing gear. There are, however, Becky's got, uh, or Christy Duncan or whoever's done, it's got water slides and stuff for the kids. So make sure that they, if, if not swimwear, at least bring waterwear. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, we'll, we'll have the train uh, up and going. We'll have... Um, uh, uh, fish fry. No, the fishing is catch and release. Uh, uh, Mike Hudgens has named most of the fish in the pond at this point. He's caught them three or four, Brandon has, three or four different times uh, at least. But uh, uh, please come and uh, catch them and ask Brandon what their names are and throw them back in. Uh, there's bass, uh, bluegill, and catfish. Um, you're welcome to fish. Bring baskets. The main reason we have this is because if you don't pick our blueberries, we have to. And so uh, we've got lots of blueberries and blackberries to be picked, so bring baskets. Uh, you can bring food. We've got some barbecue pits you could uh, uh, grill on if you wanted to, but you could also uh, uh, just drive through and grab something. Um, so please come. Second, uh, there's a fellow who's been in our class on occasion as a visitor. Uh, his name is Alex Berenson. He's a reporter for the New York Times and uh, uh, has written some nice stories about uh, 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 me and, and our law firm and some of the stuff we do. Um, anyway, he has just had a book published. Uh, it's The Faithful Spy. It's really good. I keep thinking since I know him it can't be that good, but I read it. And, and I mean, it's like really good. It's uh, uh, put out by Random House and they've got him on a nationwide book signing tour. And he's a, a nice Jewish fellow who uh, has only gone to church once in his life, and that was here. And, and, but he feels a real attachment to y'all because he came here, and it's his one church experience. So he wanted me to tell y'all, even though I'll be out of town, he's going to be at Barnes & Noble on uh, Memorial Drive, the 12,000 block of Memorial Drive, Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock signing his book, and he said if any of y'all want to come by, uh, he would love to sign it, and if you do come by, tell him that you go to this class, and that will mean a lot to him. Um, okay, and if you don't, then I don't care. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, he's a good guy and a good friend, and uh, I hate that we're not going to be here. I'm sure Becky will, I'll be, I'll be out of town, but Becky will go by, uh, so call Becky, y'all can uh, carpool. Um <laughs> Scott did a great job this morning. If I'd have known he was going to do all of that and, and use some of the stuff that I've got here, uh, I probably could have stayed up a lot less late preparing this lesson. But I've done it, so fasten your seatbelt uh, uh, and let's uh, go down the road. We've been studying here church history, and today we've hit the Council of Nicaea. It was held in 325. Now, before you go all glazy-eyed on me as we talk about the Council of Nicaea, let me tell you that I had prepared, before Scott kind of wedged it into his sermon, a really nice PowerPoint on some of this. My PowerPoint started out with Jesus asking his apostles, 
who do people say that I am in Matthew 16? And they give several answers of who different people thought he was. Then Jesus specifically said, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's what Peter said. I ask you this question, who is Jesus Christ? Okay, just I'm asking it. Okay, who is Jesus? He's the Son of the living God, right? We agree with Peter. Okay, but what does that mean? What does that mean? We're going to get a chance to dig into a little bit more depth of something that Scott only had a couple of minutes that he could spend on this morning. Um, um, but knowing who Jesus is is no small matter. If we go to John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And John is awake and hears some of the prayer. So John's able to write down some of it for us. Interesting that Jesus prayed out loud. Um, but, but Jesus is praying. John writes down some of the prayer. And this is something Jesus says. Jesus says in his prayer, this is eternal life that they may know, actually he says, you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing Jesus and who Jesus is is no small matter. It's a matter of eternal life. And I pose to you this question before we get to the Council of Nicaea. Question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean? Well, we may just live our lives blithely accepting the faith that we have and it never crosses our mind to ask that question, what does it mean? Or maybe something interrupts us and we ask the question. I thought of two different ways you might get interrupted. One, a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door. Anybody ever had that happen? Okay, I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. And I, I was telling some folks over lunch Friday, I may be the only Christian I know who went to the Mormon temple and filled out the card asking them to come visit. <laughs> Not because I was interested in the Mormonism, but because I wanted to see if I could convert them. Okay? I mean, they come to my door. Well, they don't anymore because we live in a gated place. Uh, uh, we've lost that privilege. But before we lived there, I lived in Copperfield. And in Copperfield, I can give you memories of Jehovah's Witnesses coming and knocking on my door. Me saying, come on in. Would you like to stay for a week? <laughs> and they'd come in, and I'd talk till, till they left. And I wouldn't ask them out the door. I mean, in part, I would do it because I didn't want them out deceiving my neighbors. But the other half, I'd do it because I think they're flat wrong. And I wanted to show them. And, and, I mean, it's the lawyer in me, but I just can't let it go. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm saying, I, you know, I, 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 come on, let's talk. Now, let me tell you what I did for today. I got on the Jehovah's Witnesses official website, because I'm meticulous about not wanting to misquote someone. Did you know they had an official website? Watchtower.org. You can pull it up, and this is what your web page will look like. Watchtower.org, official website of Jehovah's Witnesses. Go down to this browse and look up beliefs and activities and click on it. 
When you click on beliefs and activities, you get this screen, beliefs and activities. All right? Up at the top, Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they believe? You click on that link, boom, brings you here. Christ is God's son and is inferior to him with scriptures. Next, Christ was first of God's creations. And they quote Colossians 1.15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, Father is greater than I am. I messed that up. I did not do the PowerPoint on that right. That is a reference actually to John. Uh, in John, Jesus says that the Father is greater than the Son, greater than I am. He says, you shouldn't be bothered that I'm going back to the Father because the Father is greater than the Son. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe that Jesus is inferior to God. Okay? They believe that Jesus is created by God. All right? Now you're sitting there maybe saying, wow. So then I'd send you to the Da Vinci Code. Because you may not get it from a Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door, this question, who is Jesus? What does it mean to be the Son of God? See, their concept is he's the Son of God, so he's created by God. So you go to the Da Vinci Code. And Scott read it this morning, but in the Da Vinci Code, it says before the Council of Nicaea, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. So what do we make of this? Well, the first thing we make of it is Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, needs to come to this class. <laughs> and the Jehovah's Witnesses need to come to this class because this is a church history literacy class. And we're going to study the Council of Nicaea. It's our second part of Constantine. So with that introduction, let's look at it. If you recall last week, I put this on the board. And last week was a bit heavy in Roman history, but it was necessary, I think. What we put up here on the board last week was the organization of the Roman Empire before Constantine the Great took over. The Emperor Diocletian, who's the fellow that we've got down in this lower right-hand corner, was emperor of the Roman Empire, and he divided the empire in half because it was too unwieldy, too hard for him to administer as one man. So he got his best friend, Maximian, and set Maximian up as an emperor in the western half of the Roman Empire, while Diocletian would rule from the eastern half. And then, because Roman history was a bloodbath whenever one Caesar was gone and the next Caesar needed to, to come into being, he set up a new system of uh, succession. He got junior Caesars, Constantius up here to handle England and the northern part of what is now France. He was a junior Caesar under Maximian. And then Galerius was the junior Caesar under Diocletian. And the theory was, once Diocletian and Maximian stepped down, the junior senior Caesars become the big Caesars. Okay? And they get two new junior Caesars. You all remember that from last week if you were here. Um, Constantine 
uh, uh, is a fellow who works for Diocletian. Diocletian keeps the young man, Constantine, in his care. And that's the way he makes sure that uh, the daddy up here doesn't uh, try and take over the world. He's kind of holding the son hostage. But when Diocletian steps down, the son hightails it and escapes and makes it to his papa up there in England and northern France. Constantine's father, Constantius, then dies. And when he dies, when Constantius dies, Constantius's army pledges its allegiance to Constantine, the young man. And Constantine then has an army and says, forget you guys, I'm an emperor. I'm a real Caesar. This whole succession thing's not working. Meanwhile, problems happen down here. Galerius finally dies. Licinius takes over. You got, at one point, six guys claiming to be Caesar and ruler. And Constantine, bless his heart, comes down with his army and basically starts wiping them all out and winning. And does so in 312, the big fight here right outside of Rome at the Milvian Bridge on the Tigris. On, on, on the Tigris? Excuse me, Tiber. Sorry. Tigris would be, yeah, over here with the Euphrates. The Tiber River that goes through Rome. Uh, at the uh, Milvian Bridge there has the vision that he'll conquer by the cross of Christ. And so he has his soldiers paint the cross on their shield with the, the, the Cairo uh, initials of Christ. And, and he does conquer. And, and ultimately conquers the entire and reunites the entire Roman Empire under him. But now he's faced, he being Constantine the Great, with the same problem Diocletian was faced with. And that's how do you rule an entire empire that's that broadly stretched out, that's got enemies in a number of different areas trying to attack you, that's got internal problems. You don't have great communications. You don't have a good FedEx system where you can get it overnight. You don't have fax machines. You don't have internet and email. You don't have telephones. You can't just up and move an army from one place to the other. You've got major logistical problems ruling something that large as one ruler. But Constantine has a bit of a different solution. See, Constantine embraces Christianity. And when he embraces Christianity, he's got throughout the entire world a group of people, at least 10% of the population, who believe in something enough generally to die for it, who are not out to try and take over his political kingdom, who already have a structure built in with bishops and, and areas. I mean, he's got something that really works to help consolidate a kingdom. Do you see that? And so what he does is, is he uh, has his Roman Empire, and when he does it, we'll get through these guys, here it is. When he does it, he divides it up into various dioceses. Um, here's the one of Africa, here's the one of Egypt, here's the one of the East. And these are the little areas where the various church bishops rule. And he's got, Constantine's got his empire all laid out in a really good way. Things are going swimmingly except for a, a, a kind of a problem right down here. See that circle? That's the problem. The problem has a name. The name is Arius. 
Arius lived from 250, we think, still an age where they didn't celebrate birthdays. That's just a side here for a minute. You ever wonder why you, when you read history books, they say that usually they'll have a, 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 the letter C with a period for a birthday. I mean, circa or around, you know, generally. They didn't celebrate birthdays back in the Roman time. In fact, the day you were born wasn't that big of a deal. They'd celebrate your death day, not your birthday. Bizarre. We'll get to that when we start celebrating birthdays. But that's one of the reasons why the birth of Christ is not a day that people know at all. The birthday was not really celebrated. It was the death day. So anyway, um, Arius is born around 250, dies 336. We know when the guy dies. We're just not too sure when he was born. And, and he was a very learned man. He was a, a man who had a, a grave manners. He was very serious. And he lived a very righteous life. He wasn't, uh, 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 he, he was very aesthetic. He, he uh, uh, ascetic. He, he uh, uh, wasn't married. Uh, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, almost a John the Baptist type guy who, who didn't live extravagantly. He was very frugal, very careful. And a lot of people admired him for his lifestyle. A lot of people thought that's a very holy man. He was very smart. He had great education. And he comes and he becomes a pretty high up guy in the Egyptian church out of Alexandria, Egypt, right down here. Under the bishop who just happened to be named Alexander. It's kind of a convenient name for the bishop of Alexandria. But Bishop Alexander takes Arius and, and Arius is one of the top leaders in his church. But Arius has some bizarro beliefs. Arius believes and taught that Jesus was not fully God. That Jesus was created by God. We have uh, four writings of, of Arius still extant. And I want to read to you from one. This is a, a letter um, that was sent to the Bishop Alexander. In it, here's what Arius writes. He says, we, and he's talking about him and the people with him, acknowledge one God. Who alone is unbegotten? Who alone is eternal? Who alone is without beginning? Who alone is true? Who alone is immortal? Who alone is wise? Who alone is good? Who alone is full of power? It is He, the one God, who judges all. The one God who controls all things. The one God who provides all things. The one God who is subject to no change or alteration. He is just and good. He is the one God of the law, of the prophets, and of the New Testament. This one God before all time begot His only begotten Son, through whom the Son He made the ages and the universe. The one God begot the Son, not just in appearance, but in fact by His own will. And He made His Son to exist, and He made His Son unchangeable and unalterable. God's perfect creature is who Jesus was, unlike any other creature. But He was created by God's will. From the Father He received being in life, and in creating Jesus, the Father conferred His own glory on Him. Okay? So that's what He's teaching. Those are His words. 
Jesus was not fully God. He was created by God. Jesus did not exist forever. There was a time where Jesus was not. Alexander, the bishop, said this is heresy. Okay? Now, we're not to the Council of Nicaea yet. Dan Brown in his book says that the Council of Nicaea, they decided and voted by a narrow margin that Jesus was going to be divine. No, the church already knew it. In fact, the bishop Alexander calls in Arius and says, you're teaching heresy. Arius has a number of believers who, who uh, support his, his, wacko, uh, his views and... Um, he calls him out. He realizes he's in danger of being excommunicated. So he gets his people and they have riots in the streets. And they're walking around with placards and signs that says, There was when the sun was not. In other words, there was a time where there was no son of God. And they're marching in the streets. They created sing songs. Little cute songs. You know, da 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 da. Kind of like nursery rhymes. And they were walking around singing those. They were trying to get the whole movement going. So the bishop of Alexander, Alexandria wouldn't have uh, the wherewithal to uh, uh, kick him out of the church. But the bishop had the wherewithal. He got together over a hundred of the church leaders in Egypt. They got together and they kicked him out. Now, here's the dilemma. Okay? You got two choices here. Consider the dilemma. This is what Alexander said. Okay, this is the bishop. He says, if Jesus is not God, then God has not united with humanity and we cannot be saved. If, God has, if, if Jesus does not have, is not God, then God has not come down in any way, shape, form, or fashion to save us. We don't have salvation. For the bishop Alexander, this is a matter of salvation. Arius, on the other hand, says, you bet it's a matter of salvation. Because what Arius said is, if Jesus is God, then he's not truly human. And we don't have salvation. We don't have some... And, and salvation for Arius was a bizarre thing. It wasn't just this personal idea of, we know Jesus and so we go to heaven when we die. Salvation for him was we've got Jesus down here who's human and we can follow his example and his life and in that we have our salvation. So he says if he's not human, then, then we can't follow him. We can't be deity. We can't be God. So you can't... And, 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 and so he says... And, and aside from that, if you got him as God, now you got more than one God. How many gods you got? Bible says one. Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Ten commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's one. So Arius is saying, you guys are the heretics because you're trying to say that there's more than one God. And if Jesus is God, then he can't be human. Because God's not a human. You see the problem? Okay. So, now, we're going to take a few weeks to iron this out, by the way. Okay? This isn't something like, the church didn't get over this in a 45-minute lesson. So we're not going to get over it in a 45-minute lesson either. It's going to take us a few more weeks. 
So bear with me, because I'm not answering all the questions right now. Okay? Now, let me tell you what Constantine did. Constantine hears all of this, and he sees, you know, he needs the united church, right? He doesn't need this church all split up because this is the backbone of his kingdom. So he does what any good leader will do. He writes a letter. says, get over it. He says, quit fighting over, quote, a trifling and foolish verbal difference. Son of God, not Son of God. You know, okay, okay. Divine, not divine. Just get over it. Can't y'all all just play nice and support your emperor? But that doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. So then, Constantine goes for plan B. Plan B, Constantine the Great becomes Constantine the Mediator. And he calls a big, big, calls all the bishops in meeting. I want all the bishops from all over Christendom to come on in. We're going to meet in Nicaea. We're going to hash this out. I'll be there myself. And so 318 bishops come from all over, not just the Roman Empire. He's got several bishops coming in that aren't even in the Roman Empire. And they all come together. And, 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 and this is worth pausing for just a minute and, and talking about because what happened here is kind of bizarre. Just 20 years earlier, the Roman emperor is trying to kill all the Christian bishops. Just 20 years, go back 20 years, 1986. Y'all remember 86? Okay, most of us do. Some of you kids don't, but most of us do. 1986 wasn't that long ago, was it? Who was president in 86? Reagan. Y'all remember him? Okay. Just 20 years earlier, the emperor's trying to kill all the bishops. The bishops are going into hiding. The churches are being destroyed. The scriptures are being burned. Now, you fast forward just that 20-year period, and now all of a sudden, the emperor is saying, okay, I'm going to pay first-class tickets for all the bishops to come together I'm going to give you the best accommodations. I got the king's cooks. We're going to give you the best food. We're going to have this big retreat where we're going to iron out all these issues and then I'm going to send you all all home and you're going to keep peace in my kingdom. That's a massive thing. Constantine, the 318 bishops come together and they get to meet in the imperial hall. Also in a, in a, in a basilica as well. The meetings took place in two buildings. But they come together and, and, and first, like a good emperor, he gets them all together and lets them kind of talk amongst themselves. And they're all getting used to each other and everything and doing small things until he makes his appearance. And he's got this big gold chair put up on high where he's going to sit. Because he's going to preside. He's going to be the mediator. He come, Constantine comes out. He's got this elaborate gold robe with all of these jewels. And he gets up and he says, okay, the meeting's coming to order. Now, let's talk about it. What's going on? Who do we have here? Well, we've got 318 bishops. 28 of them are Arians. That means 28 of these bishops readily say, we agree with Arius. 
And so the question becomes, how are we going to handle this meeting? Well, they have some incidental discussions about this, that, and the other. But once the rubber hits the road, the, the, the first decision is someone's going to read what Arius believes. Now, Arius doesn't get to come to the meeting as an attendee because he's not a bishop. Okay? But they bring Arius in and out to ask him questions and cross-examine him at times and try to get him to explain his position on stuff. This meeting lasts a couple of months. So this big council's there, and the king comes in. They call the meeting to order, and then somebody stands up, we don't know who, and says, I'm going to read, here's the statement of Arius. Here's what he believes, much like I just read it to you. We acknowledge one God who alone is unbegotten. This one God before all time begot his only begotten son. Well, at this point, some of the bishops put their hands over their ears and start shouting, La, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Stop the blasphemies, I can't handle it. And, 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 and a riot breaks out. The emperor has to stomp his foot and say, Hey, stop it. All right, I'm like a bunch of kids. This is, this, is, this is a holy thing. Stop it. And he stops the rioting. Um... Now, I want to pause for a minute here. Uh, and I want to tell you, by the way, uh, the, the result before we pause. Um, the result is a creed is put out. The Nicene Creed. N-I-C-E-N-E. -E, Nicene Creed. Because it's a creed that came from the council that met at Nicaea. Creeds, we don't do creeds much anymore. Any of y'all know any creeds? Boy Scout, um, the Apostles' Creed, some, yeah, Ellen said the Apostles' Creed. Um, creeds were real handy back then. We don't need them as much anymore. Um, you got a Bible? Okay, then that does you pretty good. Okay. But back then, before the printing press, Bibles were hard to come by. You didn't just like go down to Barnes & Noble or, or Grapevine and buy you one. Amazon.com? No. You, you, without the printing press, scriptures were very, very, very uh, special and hard to come by. Okay? Just like any other book. So how do you teach people to know certain basics about faith that they can use as a measuring stick so when someone else stands up and teach, they can say, yeah, that's right, or no, that's heresy. The way the early church did it is through creeds. It would put together very short statements of faith that people would memorize, that were memorable, like the Boy Scout Creed is memorable. And then you have something to measure teaching by and doctrine by, because you can't just go look it up in your Bibles when you get home. So they come up with a creed. Now, if we go back to what Dan Brown said, before the Council of Nicaea, you know, Jesus was blah, blah, blah. Well, he's wrong. He's, he's wrong. And you've got to understand, before the Council of Nicaea, Jesus was not just thought to be a man. Before the Council of Nicaea, Jesus was thought to be the Son of God. And that's why Arius had already been kicked out and excommunicated by the Egyptian church. Ultimately, at the Council of Nicaea, the creed was signed by 316 
of the 318 bishops. Only two wouldn't sign it. Um, by the way, also, Scott was right this morning. The Council of Nicaea, contrary to Brown, uh, didn't have anything to do with Scripture. They did in the sense of here are the books that go in the Bible, here are the books that don't. They didn't even touch that. That wasn't even an issue. They didn't pick out the Scriptures. So uh, that's a no too. But they did adopt the Nicene Creed. Now let's read the Nicene Creed for a moment. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Now that's not hard, is it? You agree with that? I agree with that. Okay. We believe in one God. And you see why they're saying that. We believe in one God, the Father. Now, the Arians would probably have agreed with that too. That much everybody agrees with. But here's where it got complicated for the Arians. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. Okay, Arians would agree with that so far. That is of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father. You get the idea they're saying the same thing over and over and over. They want to make it real clear. Anybody signing off on this and anybody memorizing this is not going to fall prey to the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on their door. Begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and our salvation descended, was incarnate, and was made man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and comes to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's not enough, the council said, we're going to add a little extra at the bottom of the creed. Here's the extra. Anybody who says there was a time when Jesus was not, anyone who says he was not before he was begotten, anyone who says he was made out of nothing, anyone who maintains that he's of another hypostasis is uh, another substance, or uh, another substance, same thing, or that the Son of God is created, or mutable, that means changeable, or subject to change, same thing, the Catholic Church anathematizes. That means that uh, basically you're cursed and you're kicked out. Okay. Now, um, was this something new and novel? No, it wasn't. Uh, remember if we go back in church history, Tertullian, one of my favorite early church writers because he was a trial lawyer in Carthage. This is nothing new. Look back at what Tertullian wrote over a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea. He says, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all of one by unity of a substance, the unity into a trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three, however, not in condition, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, in aspect, yet they are of one substance, they are of one condition, they are of one power. See, where Dan Brown gets this idea that before uh, uh, the Council of Nicaea, no one thought Jesus was divine, that's just wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. I mean, I'd like to tell you that, that people don't believe things that are wrong, but they do. P.T. Barnum said it best, right? Isn't he the one that said there's a sucker born every minute? Um, uh, so anyway, so this, this was not something new. Now, what I'd like to do in just the last couple of minutes before we leave, the Council of Nicaea, that's kind of a bad picture when you blow it up like that. 
Sorry, I couldn't find a better one. The cameras were really low pixel back then. <laughs> um, what, what I'd like to do is tell you that there were also 20 canons adopted because the church had this extra time on their hands while the emperor wasn't in there and before they did the fighting. So there were 20 other things they talked about, whether or not Christians could serve in the military, uh, uh, whether or not what kind of exams the clergy should take before they should be allowed to be clergy, can they be bishops if they've been castrated, um, uh, which bishops have supremacy over other bishops, a uh, uh, big thing on usury and interest rates and, and should they be charging interest for money that's loaned out and stuff like that. 20 small little things like that came out of it as well. But now, if you go back to your Gospel of John, let's look briefly at a couple of scriptures before we quit. And I go into a lot more depth in this in the, uh, in the lesson that you've got in front of you. Um, Jesus does say the Father is greater then he is the son. And this is one of the passages that Jehovah's Witnesses will use to say the son's inferior. If God the Father's greater, son must be inferior. Okay? What do we do with those kinds of passages? What do we do with the passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Begotten. Does that mean that he was, came into existence? That he didn't exist before? Um... Well, one thing we do is we study those scriptures. Um, but we study them within the context of the Bible at large. I am convinced you can take verses out of the Bible and come up with just about anything you want to if you take them out of context. My favorite story is the one you've all heard countless times, but the, it's made up. But uh, uh, the fellow who decides he needs purpose for his life, so he's going to uh, uh, open his Bible up and let God speak to him today. Judas went and he hung himself. Oh, that's a bad one. I'll go for another one. Go thou and do likewise. That's two out of three. What thou doest, doest quickly. You can get scripture to say just about anything you want. That's why we need to take it in context. The Father, God Almighty, when Jesus is speaking, is greater than Jesus. Jesus was, uh, uh, Jesus Christ was God having emptied himself and taking on the form of a man. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul says, have the same attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who, even though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. And the bizarre thing about Christ is he not only humbled himself by becoming a man, from, leaving Godness and becoming a man, but he humbled himself even further to other human beings. And this is the one verse, or the one chapter or passage, I should say, that the Jehovah's Witnesses I, I discuss with can never find an explanation for. Because what, what, what Paul says is, Christ, in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and then he humbled himself to men even further to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also, Paul writes, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on Christ the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I say to my Jehovah's Witness neighbor, knock, door knocker, missionary type people, if every knee will bow to Jesus in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, if Jesus is not God, then God's going to be bowing his knee to Jesus. How does that make sense? And they don't have an answer because that scripture can't make sense to them. To an Arian, I wish I had Arius. I mean, I would just love to sit down with the fellow with Bibles in front of us and say, okay, now we've got Bibles in front of us. Let's sit down. What on earth can Paul mean when he says, every knee will bow to Jesus? That only makes sense if Jesus is God. Now, the complexities of the Trinity... How can Jesus be God? We've got to be real careful because some of us have a concept of the Trinity that is actually a, a three-God process where we think that, that uh, you know, there are three different gods. And there's not. There's one God in three persons, but one God. And, 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 it's, and, and how can Jesus be fully God and fully human? Well, there was an emptying we know about from Paul, but somewhere in the midst of this is also a mystery. And when we get into architecture, uh, which we're going to try and touch on a little bit next week, I believe, if you look at one of the churches that, that was built in, uh, in Constantinople, Constantine's town, it was built by the emperor Justin uh, uh, a decade or so, I mean, a, a century later, but it, it's called Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. And if you've ever been to Istanbul and seen it, it's phenomenal because it's got this massive dome. And, and from the inside, you look up and you can't figure out what's supporting the dome architecturally. You just wonder how on earth they built it. And it was built that way on purpose because the idea that was meant to be conveyed is the mysteries of heaven are hard for us to understand on earth. How do we explain the delicacies of the Trinity? We don't have full and thorough explanations. But just because we cannot know God fully doesn't mean we can't know Him truly. That's worth saying again. Just because we can't know God fully doesn't mean we can't know Him truly. And so we're left in a position here where we take what God has said about Himself through Scripture and we accept it. And to some extent, there, you know, I, I, can't, I can't take a, a child who's six and explain to a child who's six what it's like to be in a marital relationship. What it's like to be with someone who's the other half of who I am. What it's like to have your heart knit with someone. Because a child who's six doesn't have what it takes to understand that kind of a relationship, you know? Um... How do we think that we're going to just automatically and easily understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit when this is what we have as our existence? It's hard for us to do. There are all sorts of illustrations people come up with. Um, uh, one of the best that I know, though it, it breaks down, is there's H2O. 
And it can be liquid water, it can be ice, it can be uh, steam, but it's all still H2O. It's one substance, even though it's in different forms. Well, maybe, but that breaks down too. That's not, a, that's not, it's not just right there. So um, what do we do with that? Well, we read the passages of Scripture. We understand that Jesus Christ on earth was the firstborn of all creation. Where it talks about Jesus being begotten by God the Father, the Greek word begotten does not mean sired as an offspring, like we think of it. Begotten meant one and only. If you read your NIV for John 3.16, it doesn't say that he gave his only begotten son. It says that he gave his one and only son. Because that's what the Greek, and I've plugged this into your lesson. You've got a lot more in your written lesson than I have time for up here. But uh, uh, the, one and o- the one and only Son, there is a uniqueness. Jesus Christ was God incarnate. He has existed from all time. He will exist to all time. He is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So with that, our points for home. Church history is relevant today. Dan Brown should be here. We can't know God fully, but we can know Him truly. And I really want to urge you to remember that God emptied himself. And let me tell you why I put this in here. Um, it is so very important that people see us, and by us I mean Christians, as people of humility. Um, it's hard to do. We live in a world that, that idolizes success. We live in a world that idolizes um, uh, the, 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 the top. Bob Euchre never was going to be a famous baseball player if he wasn't able to make fun of himself for being so sorry. And he's not going to be a, a, a Babe Ruth. He's not even going to be a Barry Bonds okay, with an asterisk next to his name. Bob Euchre's just so, so We idolize, but... And it makes all of us want to be something big. And don't you want to be something big? Don't you want to be really important? Don't you want your kids to look at you and think, man, he's so important or cool or big? And yet, what we're called to be is emptied and humble servants. And that's really counterintuitive with our culture and and what's in us. And it's the kind of thing that we need to kind of set the alarm clock in our brain. Those days where we're in situations where we want to puff our chest and we want to be something big, we want to be the great, we need to remember that Christ emptied himself so much so that all these, a lot of these poor fools think he wasn't even God. But only God could do something like that. It's, it's really an incredible thing, and that's what we're to emulate. So those are our points for home. You're welcome to come to the picnic. Would you pray with me, please? And this will also be our prayer for the food, too. So you have to pray with your own kids because we may not get a chance at the picnic. God, thank you so much for everybody in here. Uh, Thank you for the wisdom that you give us uh, uh, through uh, your word, through discussing things with each other, and, and through the illumination of your Holy Spirit. It's my prayer that you'll touch everybody's heart in here. Uh, and draw them closer to you in real ways that make a difference in how we live and show others your love. In Jesus we pray, amen.